I plan to go to law school after I graduated, but uh, looks like my folks won't have enough money to put me through college. Well, the world needs ditch diggers, too. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans. Then I became the CEO man. Are you ready to be mentored by some of the best minds in entrepreneurship in the world? Then you're listening to the right podcast, Ditch Digger CEO. We're going to be interviewing CEOs and founders who will be telling their amazing, rags to riches stories. These entrepreneurs who dominate the industries they serve will be sharing the secrets to their success. We'll be talking to millionaires and billionaires. Many who started with nothing. You're going to be mentored with golden nuggets of shared experiences from my guest, whose time is worth thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars per hour. I started in the paving business right out of high school. And with no college education, mentorship has been my education of choice. I started over 25 companies in the last 20 years, have generated over $1.5 billion in revenues. My guarantee is this. If you listen to Ditch Digger CEO and you want to be more successful, you will become more successful. The secrets of my success and for many of the world's greatest business leaders will be revealed. Let Ditch Digger CEO mentor you. Here we are, Ditch Digger CEO. Uh, Quentin and I are having a blast with this, doing, doing this. Uh, this is the I don't know, sixth, seventh, eighth one, whatever it is. And, We're rolling, man. And this is good. And you're going to know some of these people, Dennis, because they're mutual friends of mine and yours. Um, and it's just so much fun to... to, to uh, pick the brains of our friends and how the heck they did it, right? How they built what they built, how they how they created success in their own right. Um, so we're excited as heck to have you on here, Dennis. I mean, I know a little bit about your story. I know I know who you are culturally and, and love you as a guy. You're you're such a <laughs> you're such a cool guy. Um, you know, you, you you look at look at uh, you know my one of my good friend friends, your son, and what you've done yeah. in raising an incredible man in, in Jason, and um, it, it, that, that's usually a representation of who you are, and and, uh, and I know it is. So besides that, you're you're a heck of a golfer. Love golfing with you. Um, uh, you know, you're you're uh, you're an athlete too, which is fun. So, oh really? So so Dennis, uh, great entrepreneur. We we're, we're excited to have you, and, and love to get get moving well, thanks. forward. Thanks. It's great to be here. I tell you what, you know, it, it's kind of simple. We just sit here and talk about, uh, you know, what 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 created Dennis Barcima and and the success you've had, and and the and the and the cool things you're doing today, and all mm-hmm. the great causes you're a part of. Um, so if we could start it from the from the okay. top, and we say, who is this Dennis Barcima guy anyway? <laughs> where where did this where did this happen? Where did you get started? You know, where did where did you grow up, and when and and how did you uh, how did your life uh, fall into order? Yeah, early, early yeah. on. Yeah. No, thanks for uh, the chance to be here. Um, wow, you know, there's so many things that, that, that create you, right, that, that, that make you. And, um, you know, I, I was very blessed to be born to two great parents. Uh, I, I, I kind of lived the white picket fence life, childhood, as I grew up. Uh, my mom was an administrative assistant at the College of DuPage for the, for the dean of students. My dad was a maintenance man at Pepperidge Farm Bakeries, and, and um, he always used to bring the Pepperidge Farm bread home <laughs> at night, which was awesome. Likely contributed to my weight issue as a, <laughs> a young child. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I had two great parents. I, I, I had a wonderful brother uh, who's six years older than I am. And, 
and you know, I think it was actually my brother who 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 gave me the opportunity to learn some some of the work ethic that I have because my he somehow wound up at the Oak, at the Oak Brook Polo Club, um, and and back in these days, this this is going back to the '60s. Oak Brook was the polo capital of the world during the mm. summer. The best the best players in the world came to Oak Brook to play polo during the entire summer season. Whoa. And my, and Alan, my brother, was out there, and he he was exercising horses uh, for a polo player. Um, but he hated to to clean stalls, um, mucking stalls, as they say, and and so. He brought me out when I was 12 years old to muck stalls. And, <laughs> you know, I, I just learned a work ethic out there that if you're going to muck stalls, be the best mucker out there. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, I and, and, and I was just always proud of how clean my stalls were and how uh-huh. clean my aisle was. And, uh, <laughs> and so a couple of players took notice of that, and uh, they hired me back the next summer, and I just kind of – Kept going back. In fact, it was interesting. I turned sixty-five here pretty soon, and and so I got this notice from you wouldn't know it, would you? I would Social know, Security, absolutely. you know, on on how much I'm going to get here <laughs> at age sixty-six or seventy if I wait until that time. And 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 I started paying taxes back in uh, nineteen sixty-six. Wow. So I was I was twelve years old. <laughs> wow, wow. Um. So that was kind of cool, and. Um, <laughs> Big taxes. So I've been paying. Ta- I, I, I think the, the the first year I paid taxes, it was like seventy five dollars uh, was 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 what I paid in, and, and so um, and and so I, I I began working out there, and you know, and that's a great work ethic when you work mm-hmm. with horses or you work with any sort of an animal, because I was there at at five in the morning. Um, you know, to feed and start cleaning. And eventually I picked up with a family out of, out of St. Louis who taught me how to ride and taught me how to play polo. And, and I hacked around a little bit with that. Um, in fact, there's a funny story. Um, the family out of St. Louis was called the Orthwines and I specifically worked for Peter Orthwine. And uh, so Peter went to Cornell and he graduated from, uh, from that very fine school and you know how when you're young, you don't really realize how old somebody is, right? So I always yeah. thought that Peter was, like, way older than I was. Turns out he was only, like, seven years old. <laughs> I was. He was, like, 25 when I was 18. Right? But I was graduating high school, and Peter, uh, one day, we're out riding, and he says, you know, you need to go to Cornell and play on the polo team at, at that school. He said, you would be awesome on the team and, and I said, great I, I didn't even know where Cornell was <laughs> and I was going to Naperville Central High School that's where I went to high school and um and so uh, he writes a letter on my behalf to the polo coach at Cornell and the coach mm-hmm. writes back to me and says hey we're looking forward to having you on the polo team here and and good luck in applying to Cornell and I'm like wow okay so I need to apply okay <laughs> find out how to do that <laughs> And, um, and, 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 and so I get this very nice, um, this very nice rejection letter from Cornell. Oh, wow. Apparently my 2.94 grade point average <laughs> in high school was not impressive enough for Cornell. Um, I, I, I had no clue in that. Y- years later, my mom puts together my childhood 
book, right? And mm-hmm. and the very last page is my rejection letter from <laughs> Cornell. And I'm like, Mom, you you do know that this is a rejection letter? And she said, well, I never really read it. I just saw that it was from Cornell. <laughs> oh, man. And, and, um, and, and so I wound up going to the College of DuPage. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so uh, I went second. from Cornell to right. the College of DuPage. Um, and, uh, no polo and team? No, no polo team. <laughs> no polo team. What's it that? Um, that and, and then from there, I went to NIU in DeKalb, uh, and, uh, and I graduated from NIU uh, with a degree uh, in business. And, uh, and from there, you know, went to work for Burroughs Corporation, um, which is now Unisys Corporation, so in the high technology space. Um, and, and that was a major uh, move for me. Because I stutter, and I've stuttered my whole life. Um, so when I was growing up, it was hard for me to even put three words back to back. Wow. Um, I never participated in class um, because I was always afraid of being made fun of. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I was bullied when I was younger before we even knew the word. Um, because as my mom used to like to say, I was pleasingly plump. Uh, and I stuttered, so that wasn't a great combination. That wasn't a great combination to be Mr. Popular, going up in grade school and high school. Um, but um, but I've always been the type of person that if I need to get better in something, if I need to learn to swim, I'm, I'm going to throw myself into the deep end of the pool. That's good because uh, I'm either going to swim or die, <laughs> and 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 I hopefully will learn to swim. And so, if I wanted to learn to communicate. Uh, and to speak, b- become a salesperson. And, oh, and, wow. and you're either going to learn and yeah. get better at it or you're going to fail. And, uh, and, and so I became a salesperson. And it's funny, folks always like to think that um, my move into the technology space was a, a plan, you know, that I, mm-hmm. that I knew the future of technology <laughs> and I knew that that's where the future was. And, and I hate to tell folks, I always call it, I, I said, it. it it's the $500 decision. Uh, I, I had two job offers that I considered out of college. One was with Burroughs Corporation. The other was with my fraternity, Sigma Alpha Epsilon. Uh, and the SAEs offered me um, a role in the national office, which is in Evanston, uh, to be the East Coast liaison for them. So I, so I would be the, the go-between between the the chapters on the East Coast and the national office back here Mm -hmm. at Evanston. And I loved SAE. I loved being a Greek and and so forth. But they offered me $11,000 a year in salary. So this is 1977, right, when I graduated. They offered me $11,000 a year in salary. Burroughs offered me (laughs) $11,500 in salary. And so, you know, I, I had loans to pay off, too. So mm-hmm. I took the $11,500 job. I think if it would have been reversed, I, I, I would have gone to work for my fraternity. And so, you know, it, 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 it was by fate that I, I got into the tech space. But once I got there, I realized, wow, this is a pretty cool place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were these cool companies like Apple and Microsoft uh, that were being born back then and lots of hot things going on in this place called Silicon Valley, which I didn't even know where it was. <laughs> you know, it was like Oz, right? Oh, Silicon Valley. Where the hell is it? <laughs> <laughs> Probably I, the other big road. I'm not sure, but I want to get there, right? And, uh, 
And, and, and so when I got into the tech space, you know, and, and I became a salesperson, um, and I always tell this to students and folks that I mentor that you're never going to be the smartest person in the room. There, there's always somebody smarter than you. Um, so, so don't, do, don't try to make your success based on, based on your microphone falling. Um, <laughs> wow, I'm, I'm shocked my coffee didn't fall. Don't, don't try to base your success on just being the smartest person in the room. Mm -hmm. I'm going to outsmart everybody because you won't. But what you do have control over is being the hardest working person in in the room because that's something that you've got direct control over. So I, I just always base my, you know, my life on, I am going to outwork everybody and, and I will just do whatever I need to do effort wise in order to achieve whatever success I'm going to achieve. Um, and, and that's just kind of the, you know, the, uh, the creed that, that I've had my whole life is just work hard. And, and the rest will take care of itself. So, so and who, who really did you, your brother was the one that kind of you watched as a younger brother, you know, watch his work ethic, watch what he did. Or, you, know, how, you know, I you think know. it was my brother, it was my dad, it was my mom. Uh -huh. I mean, my, my mom, God bless my mom. You know, she, she's 90, she'll be 92 on her next birthday. Awesome. And, and, and my mom, her whole life suffered from migraines. Mm. And I would watch my mom come home from putting a full day of work in at the College of DuPage or wherever she might have been working at that time. She didn't work there her entire career. But, but I would watch her come home and I'd watch her lay on the couch with ice packs on her head in a darkened room long enough to relieve the pain of her mm. migraine headaches so that she could get up and make dinner for us. Oh, and, um, and, and, and I saw the devotion that, that my mom had to our family. And, it was, and I was just always amazed by that. And then I would watch my dad. My dad was a maintenance man at a bakery, right, at Pepperidge Farm Bakeries. And so he would be up an hour to the house by 4.30 in the morning because he had to be mm -hmm. at work by 5 or some insane hour like that because they were baking yeah. the bread. And he, he was the maintenance man. So if the machines broke, he needed to be there to fix them. And... Um, you know, my dad would get home at 2 o'clock or so in the afternoon. That was his shift from, like, 5 to 2 or some <laughs> insane thing like that. And, uh, but I owe my, uh, my, my devotion to the Cubs, to my dad, <laughs> because dad. I would get home from grade school, and, and my dad would be home watching the Cubs <laughs> on WGN. And, uh, not the and Sox. Huh? Not, not the, the Sox. Oh, no, man. No. But I, I, I am a White Sox fan. I'm, okay. I, I'm not right. one of those Cub fans where I hate the White Sox. No, I, I, <laughs> I like the White Sox, but I'm, but I'm devoted we're, to the we're, Cubs. We're okay. aligned there, but opposite there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but I saw my dad, you know, and, and, and he, he worked for Pepperidge Farm Bakeries for 30-some years, uh, went through the same set of doors, went to the same locker, you know, did the same job, and, and did it, you know, very, very well, and mm -hmm. rarely ever missed a day of work that I can remember. Um, and, you know, he, he, both my mom and dad just set great role models for me, in addition to my brother. So I got a question before we even dive into, you know, um, you know the, 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 the Wall Street history and, you know, you becoming the president. Uh, it seems like you had an amazing upbringing, which I think is pretty awesome. I, I would say maybe is there any specific skills that you feel, you know, like I think Gary has a lot of grit and a lot of passion. Anytime I see him, is there anything that you feel that you're you've duplicated over into business from your family 
um, because of the struggles of stuttering, because of the struggles of, as you call it, being passionately plump, right? And, and, and all of those other things. Um, is there any specific, and I don't want to, not revengeful, but just those mindsets that your family has given, any words of, um, I won't say advice, but words of wisdom to get you going so you can just continually be the person you are today? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question, Quentin. I, I, you know, I think that, and, and I love this about the students at Northern Illinois University, you know, where I've got a strong relationship and I taught for 10 years after my business career. You know, we kind of walk around with a little bit of a chip on our shoulder because we were rejected by Cornell. We, mm-hmm. we, we didn't get into the Ivy League schools because maybe we weren't up to their standards, but that didn't make us bad people. That, 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 that just said that we didn't do as well in the classroom as somebody else might have done elsewhere. And, and so I think that I've always had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder to prove to myself more than anything else. Because I, I don't think you can live your life trying to impress other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've never lived my life trying to impress somebody else. I, I live my life for myself, to, to impress myself, <laughs> and for me to feel good about myself at the end of the day. Right. Um, how, how you feel about me is your own opinion, and and you know you you may love me, you may hate me, um, but it'll be based upon or it'll be based off of h- how I do relative to satisfying myself and and my own ambition and feeling good at the end of the day and at the end of my life. Mm-hmm. That uh, there's a very good friend of mine, Ronnie Lott. So Ronnie Lott was a professional football player mm-hmm. he's in the hall of fame played for san francisco great, great football player fantastic football player yeah. fantastic friend of mine ronnie's got a saying exhaust life exhaust life right and 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 i've just always tried to do that i've always tried to exhaust life i mean god god has given us all so many great benefits mm-hmm. um and it's 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 up to us to exhaust them right and to capitalize on them so when you, when, you, when, I, when I watch you too, Dennis, and the, the six, seven years we've been friends, <clears throat> when I see you around anybody, I can, I can feel the, 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 the compassion you exude to, to other people. I don't care who they are, what level of life they are. I you know, you can see the compassion you've had for other people. You know, I think some people, if they grow up and they, and they have issues, you know, they're bullied, this or that, and they, they, they might turn into people that do the same thing themselves, right? On the other hand, you'll find in most cases, I think you find people remember that and said, "Man, I'll never be like that." Right? right? Yeah. And and so you know, I see you as successful as you've been, and 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 you know, you're looked upon by anybody that knows you. It's such a you know, such a high you know, it's high regard, right? Um, but never do do I not see that compassion in anybody around, right? Whether you're at Starbucks or we're out to dinner or whatever it is. Um, so I think that's that's pretty cool, and I I, I got to believe that part of that's you know your upbringing, your, your your parents, and they were they probably exuded that, but also the the feelings you had, you wanted to make sure nobody else had around you, probably right. Uh, yeah, I I think when you've had something done to you that didn't feel good, mm-hmm. you hopefully are the type of person that says I don't want anybody to ever feel that from me. Right. And and, and if you see somebody who in this case is being bullied step in and do something yeah i mean i i have i've embarrassed the heck out of my family but i've stopped when i see children bullying somebody at a bus stop hmm. or something i'll i'll stop the car and <laughs> awesome. get out and and break <laughs> it up wait, 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 what's <laughs> hey, going on stop here? that <laughs> stop that you know and i i i you know i i have a 
passion for trying to stop bullies. That's all, uh, that's awesome. But but, but I, you know beyond that, I, I I think you're right. I I think that you know what makes us who we are is the compassion we have for our fellow mm-hmm. uh, man in in this case, man or woman. But you know what we have for our fellow human being. Um, and I think how how you treat the world is is going to be a reflection of how the world treats you. Sure. And, I, and I, you know, I look at business leadership, and I, and I think compassion is a big part of what a successful business leader is, is going to have to have. I, you know, I know that in some cases that's not the, that, that doesn't happen. That's not, that's not the person that leads sometimes. And if not, there's a big deficit, and somebody else probably has to fill, that, fill those shoes as the compassionate leader next to that, the pain in the ass, right, whoever that is. But, <laughs> no. but you know, again, that had to be a huge, huge advantage for you as you led, as you, as you jumped into these organizations. And you can tell us about that. That, that entrepreneurial experience, the first opportunity you had to lead as, a, as, an, as an entrepreneur, as a, you know, one of the main uh, minds in an organization, and, and uh, how these attributes helped you there. Yeah. Well, there, there, there's a very good friend of mine. Uh, his name is Barry Posner. So Barry Posner is one of the leading authors in the country for leadership books. And mm-hmm. He was actually my next-door neighbor out in California, and he was also the dean of the College of Business at Santa Clara University. And uh, and Barry and I'm and I stole this from Barry, so I'm going to give him full credit. <laughs> um, but the definition of leadership is credibility plus vision, right? If you're credible and you have vision, you can be a leader. Wow. And I, so I think so. What's the definition of credibility, right? Well, it's compassion, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's trust. You know, do I trust you? Do you treat me well? Um, um, and and then do you do you have vision? So if you're credible but you don't have vision, you might be my friend because <laughs> I trust you and, 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 and I know you've got compassion for me, so you'll be my friend, but you're probably not going to be my leader because you don't know where to lead us to because you don't have the vision that you need. If you've got vision, but I can't trust you and you have no compassion, then you're not going to be my leader for mm-hmm. very long. Yeah. Right? I, I will allow you to lead me until I can find another job. <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as I find another job, I'm out of I'm out of here because I don't trust you. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need both in order to have leadership. And that's, and, a, that's good. That's really and, good. And, and so, um, you know, I think from my career standpoint, when I, when I got into the tech space, and I was probably, you know, three or four years into it, and I realized that this was a great space to be in. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, lots of cool companies coming up. And, and I just kind of gravitated to technology, not from an engineering standpoint. I'm not mm-hmm. an engineer, but just selling it. I, I love selling it. And I always tell students that is that if you don't know exactly what you want to do when you graduate, go into sales. Absolutely. But sell something that you love. If you love snowboarding, go work for a snowboarding company and sell snowboarding equipment. Right. But do something that you love, because if you're selling something that you love and that, you know, you're going to do a great job of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I made up a, uh, uh, a plan for myself from a career standpoint and I wrote it down when I was 24, 25 years old and, 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 and my goal was to become a chief executive officer. Now, now why, why chief executive officer? Well, I was a management major in college. So if I'm a management major, I might as well go into yeah. management. What's the top management job? Oh, it's this thing called the chief executive officer. Okay. So I'll become a chief executive officer of a high technology startup company in Silicon Valley. 
by the time I was 45. Mm-hmm. I gave myself 20 years to get there, right? At the time, I was still an individual contributor. I, I, I was a salesperson. I wasn't mm-hmm. even a manager yet. And, and so, what I, so, so, so the whole goal was to build a resume that by the time I was 45, somebody who was in a position to hire a chief executive for a high-technology startup company in Silicon Valley would look at my resume and go, yeah, you're qualified yeah. to be a chief executive, right? So over the course of the next few years, I, 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 I got an appointment and I met with every chief executive or vice president of whatever, vice president of sales, marketing, and engineering, who would let me into their office. And I said, I want to do what you're doing one day. What advice do you have for mm-hmm. me? And I would just let them talk about their life, about their career, and what advice that, that, that they had for me with the whole purpose of building that career roadmap. Here are the experiences you know, that I need in order to build the resume that I need to do what I want to do. So, for example, one person told me, they said, Dennis, if, you know, you're in sales. If all you do is manage salespeople your entire career, you'll be pigeonholed as great sales leader, mm-hmm. but you don't have the breadth and the depth to be a chief executive. So at some time in your career, you need to manage more than just salespeople, right? So I put that on my roadmap. <laughs> Another person that said, they, they said, well, if, if all you do is work in and manage domestic organizations, being here in the United States, and you don't manage an international organization, you're not going to have the breadth and the Mm -hmm. depth. So at some point in time in your career, you need to manage a multinational organization. Put that on on a list. I put that on my list, right? (laughs) All with the purpose of sometime in the next 20 years, I need to be in those jobs to put it on my resume and and, and, and to build it. At the same time, I, I, I built my values roadmap. Mm. I'm a very strong believer in that you need to understand what your values are. And you need to write them down. You can't just have them here in your head Mm -hmm. about what I stand for. So I started to build my values roadmap because as much as we would like to think that, you know, the it's a straight line from from point a to point b you know from birth to death <laughs> it's not you yeah. know our lines are very crooked they're hilly they're you know we get off track and 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 when you do get off track which we all do what what what's going to get you back on track it's going to be mm-hmm. your values yeah, absolutely um so i i have today i i have nine nine values and, and i share them every time i speak with students right and and you know, I'm not going to go through all nine. But Come on, my, go through them. But, <laughs> I want to hear them. But my first value is my relationship with God, right? Mm-hmm. I will be guided through my relationship with God. And it's always interesting when I'm out at Northern Illinois University mm-hmm. because it's a state university. We're not supposed to talk about God and religion and so forth. But I always make the joke of my name's on the building so they, <laughs> so they can't kick me out. <laughs> so I'm talking about God. Awesome. Um, uh, you know, my second value is my relationship with my wife is sacred. Mm-hmm. And, and I always tell the students, I said, and, and I don't just mean no, no one's going to come between my wife and I, you know, that another woman is going to come between my wife and I. That will never ever happen. But this goes beyond that to say that I, am, I, I make time to spend time with my wife. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I make time to do things with my wife because I love being with my wife. Mm-hmm. My, my wife is my greatest inspiration. She's, she's my greatest friend. And and if she's going to the grocery store and I'm free and I'm on the couch watching a game or something, I'll get off the couch and go awesome. to the grocery store with awesome. her. Right? So, so my relationship with my wife is sacred. Um, only I'm responsible for my happiness. No one in life is responsible for our, our happiness mm-hmm. but ourselves. Yes. You know? 
you're not responsible for my happiness. My my son Jason, my son Matt, my son Eric are not responsible for my happiness. Um, my wife's not responsible. Only I'm responsible for my happiness. Um, stay humble and be kind. Um, do do not judge others. And I break that one almost daily. <laughs> That's your fifth one, right? That's five. I think I might be up to five. Yeah. I, I, I'm not doing them exactly in yeah. order, but uh, yeah. but but you know, I and 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 we're never standing still relative to our values, right? We're yeah. we're either moving closer to our values or we're moving further mm-hmm. away from our values almost every minute of every day. I, I'm sure on the drive here, I I was in extreme violation of my do do not judge others as i'm driving and somebody's got the audacity to drive the speed limit you know when i'm wanting to drive 10 miles an hour over uh, i'm I'm sure i judge somebody uh the wrong way um but um but there's another one that i have which is you know i do not do drugs and i will not abuse alcohol and and i really credit that value to maybe me being here today because, you know, again, as I said before, our, our, our lines are never straight. And, mm-hmm. I, and I'm not embarrassed to talk about this at all. I, I, I talk about it in, in public a lot. Um, and I always try to pick out a student who's in the front row. And I say, how old are you? And, and most times they're 20 years old or so. And I say, okay, so if I was to tell you in 18 years you're going to have three sons, would you believe me? And they go, ah, yeah, yeah. I said, okay. So if I was to tell you in... 19 years, you're going to have three sons and you're going to be divorced. Would you believe me? And they go, ah, God, I hope not. I said, okay. So if I was to tell you in 20 years, you're going to have three sons, you're going to be divorced, and you're going to be broke. Would you believe me? And they go, oh, no, no, no. So well, I would have said the same thing when I was your age. But all those things happened to me. Mm. I was 38 years old. I had three sons. I got divorced when I was 39. When I was 40, I was broke. Mm-hmm. And... I was I was still on my career roadmap, right? I, I, I was still being successful, but when when I got divorced, and, and I've got a great relationship with my ex-wife today, but when I got divorced, uh, when 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 we were married, when my ex-wife and I were married, we lived on my salary. So as an executive, I had two components to my compensation. Mm-hmm. I had my salary that I got every two weeks, and then I had a bonus, mm-hmm. right? And the bonus came once every quarter, once every three months, and it was about 50-50. So we made a, a agreement that, that I sent 100% of my salary home to my ex-wife, because I wanted my children to stay in the schools that they were in, to stay in the home that they were in. I, I, I wanted my uh, ex-wife to, to, to continue to be a stay-at-home mom, which I felt was Im- important mm-hmm. for the success of the, of the kids. Uh, so I sent 100% of my salary home to her, and I lived off of my bonus check. And, and, and like I said, at the end of the year, it would be about a 50-50 split, but... My cash flow was was pretty cyclical, and that it came once every three months. And I was forty five days away from my next bonus check, and I was flat out of money. Um, I had maxed out six credit cards. I was living in a rented apartment on rented furniture, and I was too old to go home to mom and dad and ask for money. <laughs> and so for forty five days, I lived off my change jar. Wow. Um, and I would go into McDonald's or go into Chick-fil-A because at that time I was in Atlanta or I, I was in Philadelphia and throw my quarters up on the counter. And I, I went to a food pantry. 
Um, was, Chick the, was Chick-fil-A as good then as they are today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except they're closed on Sundays, which, which, you know, which I didn't like because I, you know, I needed food on Sundays. And, but you uh, got you got to respect that now, though. <laughs> I do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I got my bonus check and, yeah. and now I was no longer going to a food pantry. But for 45 days, you know, I, I, I was in a, a pretty tough spot. Humble, humble feeling for sure. It is. It's a very humble yeah. feeling, you know, to, to, to be in a suit and go to a, a food pantry. A, they're looking at you like, why are you here? You know, but... Um, did, but you, did you feel like that chief executive officer thing was, you know, further than five years off no, at that point? No, was, no. Still, I still had an insight. I, 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 I was still on track. You know, it was just a little bump in the road. Mm -hmm. But if I didn't have that value, I'm not going to do drugs and I won't abuse alcohol. It would have been real easy for me as a man who's 40. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm... You know, on rented furniture in a rented apartment where I had come from a beautiful home with beautiful furniture and beautiful things. And 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 now and I'm going to a food pantry. I mean, yeah. it would have been real easy for Absolutely. me to turn to drugs or Absolutely. alcohol to mask my pain. But my values said I'm not going to do that. Awesome. Right? And, and so your values are what's going to dictate who you are and keep you on track. So when you build your career roadmap, you need to build your values roadmap. So. Um, you know, I, I, I got to California, uh, in the, in the mid nineties and, um, um, I, I wound up getting a phone call from an executive recruiter, um, that this company called Redback Networks, uh, that was funded by Sequoia Capital and Axel Partners, uh, was looking for their first chief executive. And they were a Silicon Valley startup. You know, they were just a few months old and just a handful of people. And, um, and so I started to meet with them. And at the time I had gone to work, the, the, I got to California being the vice president of worldwide operations for a company called Senegram, which was in the voicemail business. And soon after I got there, the CEO left the company and the board asked me to step in as the interim okay. CEO. Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, at the same time, I'm now talking to the recruiter for Redback. And, you know, I, I, I asked him, I, I'm trying to remember his name. He was, he was a great guy. And, uh, you know, I forget his name, but I said, so, do you, and I'll never forget, I met him at a Marriott in, uh, in San Jose. And I said, so do you think I'm ready to be a CEO? And he took out my resume. He looked at my resume. Wow. And he goes, you absolutely are ready to be a CEO. <laughs> so 20 years ago when yeah. I said, hey, my goal is to build a resume that by the time I was 45, someone would look at it and say, I'm qualified to be a CEO. Checked all the boxes. There I am at age 42, and someone looked at it and said, you're qualified wow. to be a CEO. Cool. I've, I've always heard this um, phrase where it says, have a goal, write it down, for, and forget the goal and work the plan. And that's exactly what you did. Yeah. And this is a quality example of it. That is awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, and and, and so to finish that story, and the funny part of it is, is, is I'm talking to Pierre Lamont. So Pierre Lamont was one of the founders of Sequoia Capital with Don Valentine. Uh, Pierre was one of the co-founders of National Semiconductor. He was a 70-some-year-old Frenchman at the time, <laughs> Silicon Valley legend. Uh, you know, I was intimidated by him, even though he was only like five, five foot six. But <laughs> just, you know, who he was, yeah, Pierre yeah. Lamont. He, and I owe so much to Pierre. But um, 
uh, I'm sitting across from him um, at a restaurant and he offers me the job to become the first chief executive for this company called Redback Networks. And I said, well, Pierre, I, I, I would love to be the chief executive because I, I loved the technical founder, Gaurav Garg um, of Redback. Uh, I, I loved what they were doing in the tech space. I understood it. I mean, it, it was in my sweet spot. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, we, we want you to begin you know, on Monday. <laughs> and, and I said, well, Pierre, I'm, you know, the acting chief executive for Senegram. And I, I made a promise to the board and the, the chairman of Senegram was this one, one wonderful man called Dean, Dean Morton. Dean was the for, former chief operating officer for Hewlett Packard. I said, I made a promise to, to Dean that I would stay at Senegram until they hired mm -hmm. the permanent chief executive. And they're not even close. And, Pierre points at me. He always pointed with two, two fingers. fingers. <laughs> I, I'm not sure why, one, but he always one pointed with big two fingers. <laughs> <laughs> finger. He points at me and he goes, you're stupid, stupid, stupid. And I said, why am I stupid? And he goes, you, you should never have loyalty to a board because a board will not have loyalty to you. I said, okay. <laughs> and I told him my exact words. I said, Pierre, I'm from the Midwest. And when we make a promise to somebody, we do our best to keep it. Mm -hmm. And and so we continued our discussion. We had a great lunch and we, you know, shook hands and continued, you know, we, we agreed to keep talking. And in the meantime, I, I went and I talked to Dean and, and and I talked to Dean and I explained the situation to Dean and Dean says, Well, you know, it's a small company. <laughs> you know, you got a handful of engineers there, you're you're you know, months, if not years away from a product, you know, do they really need a full-time chief executive right now? And he said, maybe you could join them as a director, you know, join the board as mm -hmm. a director and continue to run Centigram. And so that's what we wound up doing. Wow. Uh, I, I, I joined the board of Redback and, and helped them out one or so days a week. And I continued to run Centigram. Uh, a few months later, they hired the permanent chief executive for Centigram. I stayed another two weeks to help integrate him into the company, and then I became the full-time chief executive so, for. So, okay, I got to say something. I mean, now, this is this is a great a great story, but <clears throat> because when I talk to anybody, anybody that's coming to work in our organization, or anybody that's leaving our organization, right? I'll say always, hey, leave leave in the best way possible that you can, because mm -hmm. you just never know what happens down the road. Yep. Whether it's a testimonial you need from that employer that you're leaving to come here. Or, or it's a, or it's a, you want to go back to that organization because they're in a great place for you, and you know, two years to ten years from now, always leave an excellent path behind yeah. you. So you're, so the, the testimonial is always great. Yeah. And and so many people don't understand that, but but those that do, like you did there, right? Those that do are are, are you know are, are so. They're, they're welcome with open arms wherever they go. Well, you never know when you're gonna have to cross back That's over right. the, that. That bridge again. And, but but uh, patience is the key there. I yeah. mean, you were very patient, and you realized that you could potentially lose this huge opportunity, but you stood <laughs> by your word. Didn't time, but, that's but yeah. Uh, no, that's that's uh, awesome. That's but awesome. I also give you know great accolades to Pierre, and then uh, the, the other partner was Jim Flash from Axel Capital. Um, you know, they were just terrific venture capitalists to work with. And, mm -hmm. and I was very blessed at Redback. We had a tremendous team from Randall Krupp, who was the vice president of sales, to Bill Miskovitz, who was the vice president of engineering, Dan Simone, vice president of product management, Larry Blair, my marketing vice president, Garth Garg, who I mentioned before, who was one of the technical founders. It was, it was a, a, a terrific team at Redback. But they, I, I always tell students, you know, that, 
the question I asked him, I said, does, does a great company begin with a great idea? And, you know, 99% of the students always say yes. Mm -hmm. I said, no. A great company begins by solving a great problem mm. with a great idea, right? Mm. But you, so, so if, if you want to build a successful company, find, the, find, find the problem. a problem that needs to be solved mm -hmm. that's important, right? And so Redback was, in sol was solving an important problem. Um, and that problem was that the world was moving from dial-up to broadband, uh, in particular DSL, and the Cisco router was designed for dial-up traffic, right? And so when the world was gonna move from dial-up um, to DSL and broadband, they were gonna have to buy a number of other routers because the router, and I'm just gonna use some round numbers here. I mean, if, if the router could, could take a uh, hundred dial-up connections, it could take about one-tenth of that in DSL connections, right? Or mm -hmm. whatever the numbers were. So, you know, the customers were gonna have to buy a, a number of other routers and sure. Garv, Garg and others came up with the idea to say, well, hey, instead of selling them a whole bunch of more routers, why don't we just build an aggregator that sits in front of the router that's designed for DSL traffic? And so all of those DSL connections come into our aggregator and then we bundle up the traffic and we hand it to the router exactly as the router was designed. So instead of buying tens more routers, they just have to buy one aggregator. Mm -hmm. And we were right. Um, and so, you know, we wound up, we, we, we started to deliver product in the, I don't know, the 1996, 97 time, time frame. When, when, when did you come on? What year was it that you came on? 97. 97. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and, and we delivered product, I think, at the end of 97, maybe beginning, yeah, p probably the end of 97. And we did, you know, $7 million in sales our first year, and then we jumped to $70 million our sec second oh, man. year. And, Jen, you know, we jumped into the hundreds of millions after that. Um, you know, we wound up doing an IPO in, in 1999. Um, and even, you know, th th that's a, a, a great story because the other thing I like to talk about is don't let fear drive your decisions, right? And um, too often times we let fear drive our decisions and, and they're the wrong decisions. Um, so, so how do you do that? Well, <laughs> um, we, we at Redback, you know, we had raised multiple rounds of private capital from, from investors, you know, from Sequoia, from Axel, and then Norwest Ventures. Uh, but we needed to fuel our growth. We, we, we were having tr tremendous growth, and we needed to fuel that growth, and we needed to raise another round of capital. And the bankers thought that we were ready to do an IPO. Um, and, uh, but we also you know, were going down a path of potentially selling the company. Um, and the board basically left it up to me. They, they said, Dennis, if you want to go down a path of selling Redback, you're the CEO. You can go down that path, or if you want to do an IPO, we'll go down that that path. Be as behind well. you either way. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I I had a tremendous board, um, and uh, and so um, you know I I'm a believer in that you need to be able to to put your job description on the on the back of a business card. You know, right? And 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 by that I mean if you look at a business card, it's small, and so it can, you can only fit ten or so words on it. So you need to be able to say what you do mm -hmm. in ten words or less, yeah. right? And um, 
and and so my job description as a chief executive officer was to maximize shareholder value. Mm-hmm. That was my job. Yep. Now a lot goes into that, right? But maximize shareholder value. And, and I knew that you know back in the late '90s, the path to maximum shareholder value was through the public markets. Uh, but I was afraid to do the IPO because of the roadshow, right? So when you do an IPO. The bankers, in, in our case Morgan Stanley, take you on a three to four week, you know, kind of around the world roadshow where you're presenting to large investment houses from Zurich to, to London to Paris to New York to Boston to Denver to Chicago, San Francisco, and all points in between. And um, you're making, you know, six to ten presentations a day. Wow hoping to stimulate interest in your IPO. You know, so when your stock goes public, that there's going to be Lots some folks there to buy it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I, I was afraid to do the IPO because of my stuttering. Um, even though I, I had um, you know, made tremendous progress, I, I, I was afraid that I wasn't going to be able to represent and present the company in the right light and that we'd have a failed IPO because of my stuttering. And um, my wife, Stacy, cornered me in the house um, one day, and, and, and she said, I know, you know, I know why you're not wanting to do the IPO. You know, it's because you're afraid of the roadshow. And she said, you're this close to the top of your mountain, right? And if you stop now, you're always going to wonder what could have been, yeah. what might have been. And she said, I don't want you to live the rest of your life always wondering what could have been. And, wow. and she was right. And so through Pierre Lamond, um, he, he... The one with the two fingers, right? Yeah, right, the guy <laughs> pointing with the two fingers. He um, sh- steered me to an IPO coach uh, in Silicon Valley. Yes, they have IPO coaches in Silicon Valley. He steered me to an IPO coach who worked with myself and my company, not only on my speaking, but our presentation. And I worked with him for several months um, and, you know, we wound up having a very successful IPO. The roadshow was wonderful. Um, it, it was harrowing because at the end of every day, there's this person in New York who's tracking. So when, when I would go in and make a presentation to a group of investors, uh, when I left, she would call them and go, oh, okay, okay, what did you think of Dennis? What did you think of Redback? And are you going to place an order on the day that they go public? Because she was taking right. the temperature every She's time. She's taking the temperature every wow, time, right? That's awesome. And and starting to build the book to say how many orders are we going to have mm-hmm. on the day that we go public, right? And uh, and so those first few days, if if you're not building the momentum, mm-hmm. if you're not building the interest in the IPO, okay. the bank will pull it. Pull the plug. Right? Yeah, the bank will pull the plug, and you don't want a failed IPO as a chief executive, right? Mm-hmm. That's a uh, that's uh, that's not one something you want. On that's your, not that something you want on your resume. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and and you know it, it would be disastrous for the, for the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, you know af- after the first three or four days, I, I knew the momentum was building, and I knew we were okay. But those first three or four days, I didn't get that's a whole lot of sleep. <laughs> like, oh God, what's what's tomorrow going to bring? Um, and it's funny too because they have you start in Europe. Right, because they know that you're going to get better as every day goes on in terms of your presentation mm-hmm. and so forth. And they also know that European investors are going to be the last ones to really invest in an American company. Okay. So make make your mistakes where the they're not going to count, right? Because yeah. by the time I got to New York and Boston and Chicago and San Francisco, they wanted me to be like, spot on, 
Um, and so we started in Europe, and that was my only chance to play golf at the old course. All right. Because <laughs> we were going to spend the weekend in Europe, and I said, well, look, if we're going to spend the weekend in Europe, I said, let's go play golf somewhere, Same right? Andrews, right around the corner, right? <laughs> awesome. And, uh, and, 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 and so I got to uh, play the old course. And even playing the old course was something. So we, we, we weren't scheduled to play the old course. We, we flew in from New York on Saturday morning, flew in to Scotland. We got you know to the hotel at like noon. It was a beautiful day. And my hotel room looked out on the old course on the road hole. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm looking out. It's beautiful. I'm like, you know, let's let's go play golf, you know, because we were scheduled to play the next day on the new course there. Uh, uh, and and I said, let's let's try to get on here. Right. So we we, we go down, we go to the starter. And, and I was with the guy from Morgan Stanley. And, and we go to the starter and uh, and we say, hey, can can we walk on? And he goes, well, no. But he said, there's a member and his son right over there they're they're a twosome if you want to go ask permission to play with them they're going to tee off at two two o'clock so we go over and 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 they were wonderful he he was a retired doctor you know there and uh and the son worked for shell oil and and we played with them and uh and i always uh have this line so the caddies at the old course right they're all in their Mm -hmm. 60 70 years (laughs) old they've been out there for 40 years and it was a par five, and I got a pretty good tee shot off, and I've got 200 and some yards into the green. And I asked the caddy, I said, do you think I should lay up? Can I swear on this uh, podcast? Sure. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I, I have to ask that question. You or, you know, you it's going to kind of – you, you have to tell this joke. Yeah, right. I've got to tell the joke, <laughs> yeah. right? And, 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 and so I asked the caddy, I said, um, is it uh, – you, you know, do you think I should lay up? And he goes – you didn't come to fucking Scotland to fucking lay up, did you? <laughs> I go, no, I did not. No, I did not. And so, uh, uh, they're they're a blast. And if we need to bleep that out, that's okay. <laughs> we we know uh, that's not a normal thing for you. For you. So we got something out of you. Don't, you. I don't ever hear out of Dennis Barcima. Well, the caddy said that. So no, that's I had, right. I, but I, even I, repeat yeah. it for Dennis. That's a big deal. So oh, that's a good one. Um, so anyway, we, we we wound up having you know a a, a great IPO. But even when, when you say great IPO, I, I mean I, I've heard not through you that it was like one of the great greatest IPOs in technology ever. It's well, second b- biggest. What was be, it? Be careful with that one. All and, right. and, and and so it was the fifth most successful IPO in the history of U.S. companies, based on first day gains. Right. Okay. So. Um. The the stock um, the, the the stock got sold at twenty three dollars a share, and, and I'm I'm gonna be approximate these numbers because it was almost twenty years ago, but uh, we sold the stock to Morgan Stanley at twenty three dollars a share. The range, the initial range that we identified at the beginning of the IPO process was I think eleven to thirteen dollars or twelve to fourteen dollars is where the stock was gonna sell. We wound up uh, selling the stock at twenty three dollars a share. Right. So, 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 so we sold 10% of the company or 2.5 million shares. Uh, so we sold 2.5 million shares plus they dropped what's called the shoe and that was an, another 10%. So we sold approximately 2.75 million shares. So it was at, about 50 million bucks? At $23 a share. So it was around $60 million, 60 million. Okay. was, was what the company got. And so we sold that to Morgan Stanley yep. and then Morgan Stanley sells it to who they, you know, oh, 
okay, you uh, said, Gary, you know, you're with, um, you know, you're with Fidelity, right? And you, you, you told us that you want a million shares. Well, we can't give you a million shares. We're going to give you 100,000 shares at $23, right? And blah, sure. Blah, blah. Um, so the day of the IPO, um, and this is a pretty cool story because Morgan Stanley wanted me on Monday of that week to make one last call on um, um, a, a big customer of theirs in San Antonio, Texas. And I talked to Pierre over the weekend. I said, Pierre, do you, do you really think I need to do this? And he's like, no, you're, you're fine. You don't need to do it. You know, it's going to be a great IPO. We're all set. And the guys from Morgan Stanley, please, you know, we really need you to come and see this customer. They really want to see you. And so I, I, I agreed, right? So we flew commercial down to Dallas, from San Jose to Dallas, and then the San Antonio. I made the call. We priced the deal right after that call. And now we're flying back to San Jose because Morgan Stanley wanted me to go to New York for the opening of it, right? And I'm like, no, I want to be back with my company. And so we arranged a big breakfast the next morning with my with the entire company in a hotel room, and Morgan Stanley was going to bring in a, a screen to show the first trade being made. On the way back from San Antonio, now we had had perfect weather the entire IPO. I mean, from foreign countries to domestic cities we had perfect weather right we we never had delays we never had anything flying back from san antonio we were, we were going to fly private from san antonio to dallas and then i was going to catch a commercial flight from dallas back to san jose they had tornadoes in texas that day so this is like the middle of april right so the april weather and we got grounded in tyler texas and it was in Tyler, Texas, that we got the call from the SEC saying, you've got to go on the IPO for tomorrow. So the call that we were waiting for that mm -hmm. said, it's a go, yeah. we, we, we got in this jet port in Tyler, Texas. <laughs> and, and I run out to the plane because we had a bottle of champagne in the plane, you know, that we were going to pop, you know, when, when, when we got. I run out to the plane, it's storming, it's raining, and I got my, my, my you know, jacket over my head, and I grab the champagne, and I come back in, and, you know, there's, like, there's my CFO and Garlov Garg is with me and then myself and, and then a couple of guys from Morgan Stanley. And so there's five or six of us in the, you know, in the jet port. And the, then, then there's this young woman who is behind the counter in the jet port seeing these guys going crazy <laughs> and popping champagne, having no idea why they're so happy, right? Uh, but, um, and and I, I spent the rest of the time on a little putting green that they had in the jet port putting. And, and, and I'm thinking... This is crazy. My company is going public tomorrow, and I'm sitting here in Tyler, Texas, on a putting green, just putting, waiting for the tornado to pass. <laughs> so um, we, 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 we now find out that they've shut down the Dallas airport, and I can't get back to San Jose. I mean, you know, myself and my CFO and Garov, mm -hmm. we, we, we can't get back to San Jose. So I go to the pilots with the private plane, and I'm like, can you guys fly us back to San Jose? And my CFO, being a good CFO, right, is like, do you know how much that's going to cost? <laughs> <laughs> and his name was Jeff Darby. And, and I said, Jeff, we, we just closed $62 million, right? We can afford it. 10%. We can afford it, right? And, um, and, and so the pilot said, yeah, but we can't because we're illegal. We've been flying too many hours today, uh -huh. so we can, we'll have to fly in another plane. So they fly in another plane. We're getting ready to go back. 
I'm on the payphone with my wife, and I said, oh, okay, we're going to fly back on a private plane. You know, we, we land at San Jose at midnight, and she was going to come and pick me up. And, and she said, are, are you sure it's okay for you to fly? You know, because, you know, the, the weather looks horrible in Texas. And I'm like, oh, honey, it's fine. Just as I said that, this big crack of lightning <laughs> and thunder comes out. And lightning lights up the sky. And I'm like, it's fine, honey. Really, no, <laughs> We're good. We're good. Oh, uh, it was the bumpiest takeoff I've ever been on. But, uh, but we got home. Um, we, we went to the breakfast the next morning. And so now I'm on the phone with this with this woman in New York who's been running our book the entire three or so weeks that we were on the road show. And and she's like, OK, you know, I I, I think we'll open up it 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 30, 30 bucks a share. Right. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's that would be great. Right. And and everybody's going to be happy. The folks who bought it 23, you know, they'll sell at 30. Yeah. We'll all be happy. She said, but, you know, the 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 buy orders are coming in pretty uh pretty steady so she said let's let's just wait a little bit and see where this goes and 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 to make a very long story short the stock opened up at about 65 dollars a share wow the stock closed the first day at 80 some dollars a share 84 dollars a share somewhere in that range right so we we sold at 23 the the stock closed the first day in in the 80s so that's where we get the fifth most successful ipo in the history of used companies but to my business students, I always say, was I happy or was I yeah, mad, yeah. right? And they said, well, you were happy, right? Because your stock's now worth 80-some dollars a share. I said, yeah, but as the CEO, I left a lot of money oh, on boy. the table. <laughs> yeah. I left a lot of money on the table because my company only got $23, right? Yeah, and about so, 60 bucks a share. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I realized at that moment that I I, I wasn't the customer, right, of, of the bank. And, and this is not a, a, a rub against Morgan Stanley. They, they were awesome. They were awesome, right? But, but I was the product. I was the product that they were selling, sure. right? And so, but it was all good. It was all good. So I think Stacy's call was a pretty good call. It was a pretty good call. I think Redback that day, we uh, we 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 closed the first day at about a two billion dollar market cap, and uh, and you know. so so um, you know what I talk about, you know, unfair advantages in life, right? And my one of my well, probably my biggest unfair, unfair advantage, no, my biggest unfair advantage is marrying a great wife, marrying yeah. Cheryl, <laughs> and. Uh, it just, yeah, we it, married up. Married up in a big way, right? And and, and it, it, you know that that partner is is a difference maker for you in, mm-hmm. in your the rest of your life. <clears throat> so, when I met Stacy before, and uh, and you married up in a big way for sure. I did. I did. And, 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 and you know, funny thing happened. Uh, we 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 were trying to get out to dinner with our wives for the first time, and uh, and so finally we got a date to go to dinner, and we're we're meeting at uh, our club, and. Uh, and Stacy and Dennis come up, and actually, you know, Jason. I think Jason came as well mm-hmm. with his fiance at the time, mm-hmm. his wife today, yeah. my son Austin, and maybe and a couple of our kids. Anyway, but Cheryl goes, "Gosh, they look so familiar." And then you guys are, look, you can tell you're looking at Cheryl. Boy, she looks so familiar, right? What what happened there, Dennis? Remember that? Yeah, I cut in front of your wife at Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, was it the same day? Was it earlier? It, it was that morning. That I dog? think she was at a board meeting, uh, or she was going to a board meeting, mm-hmm. and we were at a Starbucks in Hoffman Estates or somewhere in there, and she was looking in the glass counter, and um, and I walked up, and I I, I I I made a very honest mistake. I really didn't know that she was going to be in line. I thought she had ordered and was so, mm-hmm. but yeah. so, so anyway, I very quickly realized she hadn't ordered yet, and but I had cut in front of her, so I very quickly apologized. But how, how funny, how crazy is that, right? 
you, they, you know, they, they meet at Starbucks briefly over. I, I would have thought you would have forgotten about that. <laughs> <laughs> we, laugh, we laugh about it because what's the odds of that, right? What's the odds of, you know, we go out to dinner with somebody that, and, and this is not close to our house or where we met, right? No. This is uh, an hour away from where we were meeting that night, right? In Hoffman Estates compared to Woodstock, Illinois, right? Yeah, no, we're looking at each other like, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, why do we know each other? <laughs> oh, that's right, I cut you off this morning. <laughs> so that's pretty funny. It's weird how things happen, right? How did, um, I got a question to kind of just uh, transition it, and I know, you know, when you sold to Erickson for $1.9 billion in 2006, was that like a, a quality highlight? It, it was, a you know, like a, um, a bittersweet opportunity, you know, uh, why, why did you all do it when it seems like you all had a lot of success happening? And Yeah, so I, I was not the chief executive at, at that time. Okay. I, I, I left the chief executive's role in Red back in, I, I don't know, wow, I think it was somewhere 2000, 2001. Okay. Um, and I became the vice chairman. Um, <clears throat> and we had a, achieved tremendous growth at Red back. And... Um, we got to the point, I, I forget how big the company was at that time, but we were approaching 800 to 1,000 employees, and I had just done an acquisition of a company um, by the name of Ciara, and, uh, and there was close to 300 people that we were acquiring, plus we were acquiring some great technology that they had that uh, we thought that we needed in the, in the company, and, uh, and it was a multi-billion dollar acquisition. And the chief executive of Ciara, Vivek Raghavan, um, great guy, he, he wanted to run a big company. And, and I'll never forget, I, I was, uh, you know, we, we started right back in, you know, very humble beginnings, very humble, um, you know, dwelling. Uh, <laughs> and now we're in this three-story building and, you know, brand, brand new glass building and, and such. And. I'm in the elevator going up to my office, and I don't know a single person in the elevator, right? <laughs> and, um, and I've always just enjoyed being with companies where I knew the first name of everybody in the company. And, and we had gotten to the point where we were so big that, um, it, it, you know, we all have our Peter principle. And, and I, I had been fortunate enough, and, and again, I, I was surrounded by a great team. I had a, a great team at Redback. And, um, but, but the team and I had grown the company from zero revenue to over $100 million in revenue. And, and you know, that's a pretty hard thing to do for, you know, one management team. Mm -hmm. You know, most times by the time you get to $10 million in revenue, you need a, a, another skill set. Exactly. And, you know, when you get to $100 million, you need yet another skill set. But, you know, the team and I had, had, had taken it from zero to, you know, $100 million and. And I, I was reaching my Peter principle. It's like I, I'm uncomfortable, <laughs> you know, at, at at this size. And and um, and so I went to the board and I said, you know, Vivek wants to run a big company. Um, I think he is as or more qualified than I am to take Redback to the next level. And I think you should consider him to be the chief executive. So the board took, wow. you know, some some time. And they said, okay, we, we agreed that Vivek, uh, but they, they said we want him to work on, on, under you for six months. So Vivek was the president of Redback. I remained the CEO, and then after six months, he transitioned into the CEO role, and, um, and I transitioned into the vice chair role. Um, and then, 
you know, and then the stock market crash came. You know, the, the 2001 or 2002 stock market crash came and the tech stock, every tech stock lost, you know, 90% of its value, including Redback. Um, and, and so we went through a Chapter 11 um, in order to re restructure the, the debt. Uh, I, I was not the CEO at that time, but... So you can blame it on him then? Oh, no, no. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I blame it on the markets. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, but, but the company went, went through a, a Chapter 11. Um, they came back out of it within a year's time. Um, and, um, and, and they brought in a guy from Cisco to be the chief executive officer. Um, and he, he did a wonderful job with the company. And, and he was the one who eventually sold it to Ericsson gotcha. um, for the approximately, I, I, I think at the end of it, when, when all was said and done, it, the, the, the sale price was right at $2 billion or maybe even slight, slightly above. But it was a successful sale. I mean, it was, there, there, there were so many companies back then that uh, uh, were, were the victim of the, of the market mm -hmm. crash and losing the value in their company. And uh, I think it was a tribute to the strength of the Redback product the strength of the Redback team and the people that they were able to to weather that storm, yeah. come out the other side whole. Most of them didn't come out of that. Most of them didn't come out of yeah. it. And, you know, to be able to create enough value that somebody would pay a, a, a couple billion dollars for it. What did you do next? What was your, what was your next opportunity? Uh, you know, it, it was interesting. I, I was going to take some time off. Um, I had been running pretty hard for about 20-some years. And... Uh, um, Redback, even though I was the chief executive there for only, you know, about four years or maybe even a little bit less than four years, um, it was, it was, you know, three, three and a half or four years that felt like 30. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we ran really hard mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and I was ready to take some time off. Um, but Sequoia called me and, uh, and said, Hey, we've got these entrepreneurs here, uh, who have this idea for an optical product, um, a smart optical amplifier, and you know, we think you ought to take a look at this as you know, again, to come in as the chief executive. So I wound up doing that. That was a company called Oneta. Uh, we wound up selling Oneta to a company in Europe, and then I actually partnered with uh, Benchmark Capital, and. Uh, a, a great guy by the name of Andy Ratcliffe at Benchmark to do another company that we call Blue Lane. That was the only company that I named, um, <laughs> and 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 I'm very proud of that because I was so th that company was in the uh, uh, software security space, right? So they they made um, a a a product. So every Back then, I don't know if they still do it or not, but 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 back then in the 2005 range or era, 2005 2006, Microsoft would release patches to their software every Tuesday, or the second Tuesday of of every month, I should say. So that was called Microsoft Tuesday. Mm -hmm. When they would release these patches to corporations, the corporations didn't put the patch on their servers immediately; they would test them. Right, but when, when Microsoft is releasing the patches, they're telling all the hackers, here's where the holes are in our operating system, fire away. And, 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 and so what would happen is that the corporations sometimes would have to put these patches on before they were ready to test. 
uh, just because they didn't want the hackers to get into the system, and it, 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 it was a bad situation. So what we did is we mimicked the Microsoft patch on a server that sat in front of the corporation's server farm. So we mimicked the Microsoft patch so they could put our product in to sit in front of their server mm -hmm. farm, catch the attacks as they come in while they take the time to test the Microsoft software in their lab, before they actually put it on to their servers. Um, so we actually hired a lot of former black hats who had become white hats. So these were the hackers, the black hats, who now were white hats, mm -hmm. you know, developing software to keep the hackers out. <laughs> and I'm on my way down to San Diego. There's this young guy, uh, I, I forget his name, but he was a former black hat. I, I think at age 14, he had broken into the, you know, to NASA or, or something, and uh, and he was a former black hat, and um, and I was going down to interview him, and we were going to hire him as an engineer. And, and I'm driving down to San Diego, um, and I'm going to meet this 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 young man at a restaurant on the beach. I had the address; it turns out to be a restaurant on the beach. So I'm sitting at the restaurant, and and I'm kind of staring out at the ocean, and. There's surfers out there, and happen to notice this one surfer. He comes in, you know, gets off his board, unzips his suit, puts his suit halfway down, grabs his board. He's jogging up towards the restaurant, and that's my guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's how he interviewed with me. <laughs> was you in a suit? No, I was not in a oh, suit. Oh, okay, but, I was about to say. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was the, the only time I ever interviewed somebody in a wetsuit covered with sand. Um, but, you know, that was – that. It, oh, it, but he was a terrific young man, and and we hired him. But but when I was in the car on the way down, I'm looking at my passport. Uh, I'm 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 not driving. <laughs> I'm looking at my passport, and on the back of my passport, I had all these blue lane stickers. So back in the back in the, those days, when you traveled through the international airports, uh -huh. if you had status with the airline, they would give you a blue lane sticker, which which meant you could go in the blue lane through uh, customs, okay. which was the fast lane, right? Yep. That was the the lane to get through. And I'm like, blue lane, that would be a great name mm -hmm. for our company, right? So. So like we called it. the company Blue Lane. And where did that go? Uh, that company got sold to VeriSign. How many, um, how many years after? Uh, just a couple of years. I mean, both Onetta and, uh, and Blue Lane, um, those were companies that, you know, I think were intentionally built to sell mm -hmm. one day. Um, so Blue Lane got sold probably in the 2000, by the time the transaction closed, maybe 2008 time, time frame. Um, is that the last uh, deal you've done? Yeah, that was that was the last operational role that I that, that I held, and, and even Blue Lane. Um, that was a fun experience because I I was the chief executive who kind of got the company off the ground, and then to finish it off, I actually hired another chief executive, and I I, I then took a board role. So, uh, so and I did <clears> the same thing with Onetta as well. You can see where it pays not to have pride, right? Right. I mean, yeah. the thing about many people. Don't want to let go. Once they're a leader in an organization, pride takes over, and they're you know if you have no pride, it's no problem. If if you feel you're not, there's somebody else that can that can take it from there. You're gonna you're gonna oh, yeah. welcome no, that, right? I, I, it's I, pretty neat. Yeah, no, I I've always looked at you know we need to understand what our you know what our ceilings are and and what we're good at and what we're not good at. Mm -hmm. I'm very very proud of what we did at Redback. You know, like I said, I I, I give you know. 
full full credit to the team that we had there. As you know, Gary, I mean, you're only good as the team that's around you. And uh, I, and I had a great uh, team, and, and I'm very proud of what we did there. You know, we, we built a company that uh, I think the best testament to Redback and the brand identity that Redback built was that, and I don't know if they still do this, I've, I've lost track of it, uh, you know, because it's been years, but at least for several years after Ericsson bought Redback, they actually kept the Redback name. Um, so the product, you know, was still called the Redback Smart Edge product mm -hmm. um, because Redback just had such great brand identity. And um, so, um, so yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of what we built, but you also need to know when it's time to let somebody else come in and do it. So now, so now, I mean, I know that you do a lot of mentoring. You do, you do, uh, you, you, you've taught in this time. You've uh, dedicated a lot of time to Northern Illinois University um, mm -hmm. teaching and, and, and helping building that center and all the things you've done. What do you have the most fun doing today? And, and you know, what do you, want to, what do you want to be doing 10 years from now? Yeah. Uh, 2007, my, my wife and I left California, and we came back to Chicago, which everybody thinks we're nuts, right? <laughs> They're like, why in the world would you leave Northern California, right, to come back to Chicago? And, and uh, yeah, yeah, the weather's not quite California weather <laughs> here, but, you know, you can't live somewhere just because of the weather. Mm -hmm. I, I think you, you, you need to live where, hey, you, you need to live to where your purpose is, right? And so I, I felt that I got introduced to the social space back in 1999 by one of my board members, um, Promote Hawk. Um, and Promote was the managing director for Norwest Partners. And Promote actually has a home in Barrington. And Promote introduced us to the microfinance space. Uh, so giving the loans to the poorest of the poor to enable them mm -hmm. to start or run an income gen narrating business and um, and so my, my wife and I got involved in the microfinance space we took several international trips to South American countries and to Africa to see microfinance at work to meet these small business owners that were taking small 100 200 500 dollar loans to you know to run their businesses which might be Maria you know, in Mexico, making tamales out of her kitchen that she sells mm -hmm. on the street corner for lunch and dinner. But it's it's bringing income into the family so that they can sustainably raise their family above the line of poverty and send their children to school. Because I believe that the way to to the, the way to sustainably alleviate poverty in the world is education. Mm -hmm. If we can get every child in this world educated through at least, you know, a, a fifth or sixth grade education. In, in, an educated world will figure it out. Mm -hmm. An educated world will figure out how to sustainably lift themselves above poverty. So I'm a big believer in education. And, and, and so, you know, these, these, these loans would enable somebody to bring income into the family so that they can now, instead of their children having to be out on the street corner begging or working, their, their children can, can go back into mm -hmm. school. So we became strong components of microfinance. And, uh, and I started searching for my purpose. Um, you know, I, I had had, I had been blessed to have a, a you know, a very good business career. But um, if... You, you weren't put on this earth just to chase a paycheck. Mm -hmm. you, you were put on this earth for purpose. You, know, to, you were put here by God to, to make this world a better place. And we all need to find our purpose in life. I found mine a, a, a little bit later in life. I, I, I wish I had been younger, but I didn't even 
have somebody like myself telling me about purpose, <laughs> right? So um, around 2005, knowing that, you know, eventually I was, we were going to sell VeriSign and, and I was going to exit Silicon Valley, I started kind of searching for my purpose. And I went back and I talked to the dean of the business school at Northern Illinois University. And um, I said, would you let me teach a class in social entrepreneurship and uh, specifically microfinance? And she said, well, what's microfinance? So <laughs> I explained it to her. And then she said, what's social entrepreneurship, right? <laughs> so I explained said that to her that it's taking you know, the business practices that we know and love but applying them to addressing a social issue in the mm -hmm. world hunger, poverty, access to education, et cetera. And so we agreed to keep talking. This was in 2006. We agreed to keep talking, and she called me back a couple of months later, and she said, you know, did you ever have one of these epiphanies where you've never heard of something, but then once you hear about it, you see it everywhere? <laughs> she said, I'm having that with microfinance. She said, I just got back from a dean's conference in Atlanta and that whole breakout session on microfinance. And so she said, put together a syllabus of what, the curriculum would look like and let me take a look at it and so I did and make a long story short we started teaching the first class in social entrepreneurship and microfinance in the fall of 07 that was successful um, and I then came back and said would you let me put together a class in social entrepreneurship um, and she let me do that and we taught that first class in the fall of 08 um, and uh, we, we moved here full-time in, in 2010, so I started teaching full-time in 2010 at, uh, at NIU uh, in the college business. What was the title of the course? Well, uh, there were three courses, actually. One course was microfinance, the other course was social entrepreneurship, and that's what the, that's what the certificate was called. Okay. It was a certificate in social entrepreneurship that students can earn if they took three classes. And then the third class I developed was a you know, what we call the social competition class, right? So the students would come in and working in small teams, they would develop and they would A, find a problem, a, a, a social problem to solve, develop the solution for it, and then develop the business plan during the 15-week semester. At the end of the semester, they would make a presentation to a panel of judges and based upon which uh, uh, idea was chosen, that team got $10,000 to start their nice. business, right? To start their business. And, um, or they could choose to donate the 10,000 if they weren't gonna pursue the business idea. Mm -hmm. um, so those were the three classes that, that, that I developed and taught. And, and uh, we started at the university with a certificate in social entrepreneurship, and then it became a minor in the, early, in the early part of this decade. And today, it's actually a major emphasis. So within the entrepreneurship major, they can take an emphasis in social entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, the last class I taught, which was the spring of 17, um, I had 92 students in my wow. social entrepreneurship class. Awesome. Well, um, well, and now let me, because I, I went ahead and was like, well, um, I have a major question actually for you, Dennis. Um, I went on rateyourprofessor.com and I didn't know that was a thing, right? And literally, 
they have it where you can rate your professor. Yeah, that's and a, literally this that's is an awful thing. Yeah, and that's <laughs> oh man, I wish it was around when I was around. Now you know, and a hundred percent of the people said that they would take your course again, or they want you as a teacher. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. I was an easy grade. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, the overall the overall quality was a five, and that's the highest you can get. But here's some of the things that they were saying, you know, and it's kudos to you because I feel it it goes along with your not only your business but your core values. You can't say enough good things about him most inspirational man ever a great <laughs> teacher uh best professor at niu so um you might have some um people who might be looking at you side eye about that other teachers maybe uh he really cares about his students and he goes out the way to help them but one of the things that i saw in here was that a person said the things he taught me i'm still using five ten years later um mm. quality impact and my question and i think everybody probably needs to and it's just a, like from a social thing how do you get people to like you <laughs> um i don't think you try <laughs> I, I i i think if you're trying to get people to like you then yeah. you're gonna do the wrong things uh-huh. I, I i think you are who you are uh you do the best you can you work as hard as you can and 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 then if you're the type of person that they respect again you know go back to the definition of leadership Right, it's credibility plus vision, and and I've always worked in my life to try to be credit to, to try to be credible. You know, we, we, we work our entire life to build our reputation because the one thing the one thing we have control over is our reputation, and that may be the only thing we have control mm-hmm. over in life is our reputation. Yeah, and and you build your whole life to build your reputation, and then one one mm-hmm. wrong move, yeah. right, and you can ruin your reputation, and so I. I think I've always just tried to take great care. Some years, some days, I do it better than others, but I think we've, I've just always tried to take good care of my reputation. And, and you know, students ask me, they say, well, how do you build your reputation? How do you build credibility? And, and I have a simple answer to that. Do what you say you're going to do. Do what you say you're going to do, right? If, if, if you make a commitment to somebody that you're going to do, do something or, or, or be somewhere, do it. And if you can't, your responsibility to them is to get back to them as quickly as you can to say, look, I, I know mm-hmm. I told you I'd be here this morning at 11, but something came up. I can't be here at 11. I'll be here at 12, right? Is that okay? We, we renegotiate our agreement mm-hmm. yeah, sure. and, and, and find something. But if I just don't show up at, at 11 and I, I straggle in here at noon and I didn't call you, you're not going to trust me again the next time we set up an appointment. It's mm-hmm. like, ah, Dennis might be here at 11, but he might be here at noon. He might not be here at all. And, and, and so I, I, I think, you know, you, you just become a person that if you do what you say you're going to do, then people will trust you. And I think if people trust you, then people will like you. Love and, it. And, you know, one thing I, I, always, uh, <clears throat> I always say as a leader – you know, a leader is someone that can inspire others to be better than they would be without the leader, right? And, yeah. I, and I look at people around you and, and people that are, you know, close to you, um, you know, and, and, and that, that's happening. With any, anybody that spends any time with you, you're inspiring them to be wow. more, better than they would be without you, which is an amazing thing, right, when you can do that. I have very few things that I came up with myself, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just really good at repeating what other smarter <laughs> folks have said, but what, one of the... One of the things that I heard early in my career, um, and, and I attribute this to you know another great mentor in my life. Uh, his name is Roger Dorf, and Roger was my boss when I worked at a company called Paradigm. Um, 
Roger told me, he said, the mark, the mark of a good leader is not how well the team is performing while you're there. Mm. It's how well the team performs mm. once you leave. Absolutely. Mm. Right? So if you've, if you've built an organization that it, it only performs well as long as you're there orchestrating things, the minute you leave to go to another job and the team or the company sure. falls apart, then all you built was a house of cards, right? And you took your card out, and boom, er everything fell. And, and that just has stuck with me my entire life. Yeah. You know? and, um, and so I, you know, like I said, some years I've done it better than others, but I've always tried to build things that when I leave, that will still go on. And, 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 and I will tell you, I, I think the best 10 years of my career were the 10 years that I spent teaching. Um, I, I loved teaching. And uh, I, I was a volunteer. I, I didn't make a nickel. Um, and no, you actually spent a few nickels. I, I, <laughs> but I, I loved being in the classroom. I loved being with students. I loved Im impacting uh, you know, the future of these lives in whatever small way I might have done because they're, they're our future. I'm, I'm going to be 65 here pretty soon. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm on, you know, the 17th hole. Uh, you know, these kids are still in the locker room lacing their shoes up. They, they haven't even got on the course yet. And um, so, you know, it, it's been a great privilege in my life that God has allowed me to teach. And, um, you know, I, I had to give up teaching last year when the governor appointed me to be a trustee at Northern Illinois University, which, which you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad to be a trustee, and, and I feel that that's a very important role, and I'm happy to be a public servant uh, in, in serving in that role, but I miss teaching. <laughs> I, love, uh, I love being in the classroom. So when, when you taught sales and you were in sales, because that, I mean, that, that was the foundation, the start of your career and, and what got you to where you, you became, what you became, think about sales. What makes a great salesperson? We mentioned it a little bit, um, but when you train sales and you teach sales, yeah. I mean, sales drives every organization. And, and what do you feel really drives that, that, that's the relationship in sales? Yeah, I, you know, it's a couple of things. One is you've got to be credible. Back to that word yep. again, you've got to be credible. You, you've got to be believable. Um, but I, beyond that, I, I, I always prided myself on knowing my competitor's product better than the competitor mm. knew their own product. There you go. And, and I don't believe in negative selling and, 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 and I never profess negative selling. Mm -hmm. Don't, 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 don't sell your customer or your competition down. But if you know your competitor's mm -hmm. product, then you know the strengths of your product and, and you are better able to sell the strengths of your product when you know your competitor's product well. And uh, so I, I always, you know, teach sales reps and taught myself, you know, know your competition, mm -hmm. know what they do, and that way you'll know your strengths and, and sell to your strengths. Don't, don't sell to their weaknesses. Absolutely. Sell, sell to your strengths. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, and, and, and then I also believe in that, you know, we need to mirror um, the best in the business and, and then try to emulate them. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a big believer in emulation. <laughs> I, I, again, I've, I've been blessed with being around some, some great role models, um, some great teachers uh, who, who I've learned from. And, and our role models are not only the, 
the good role models. It's the bad mm -hmm. role models as That's well. That's right. It's the people that are in your life that just say, I'm never going to be yeah. like that. That's right. With That's the two right. fingers. Uh, with two fingers. As, he's point, as he's pointing to me with two fingers, Pierre's right? Pierre's got me pointing again. And sometimes it's the same person, right? You're, you're, you're yeah. learning what you want to yeah. be like from the same person. You're saying, well, I like this, but I don't, I'm not yeah. so crazy about this side, yeah. right? But I love this side of the yeah. person. Um, I, I'm a big believer in sales. And I, and, oh. and I tell students all the time, if you don't know what you want to do when you graduate, like, like if you aren't being trained to go be a CPA mm -hmm. or whatever it might be, Go into sales. Find some of your, find some of your passion about Go into sales. In, a, in a business that, that you can sell. The, the skills that you're going to learn in sales, you will use your entire life. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, whether it's, whether it's presenting the vision to your team as a leader yeah. or whatever. Um, what, uh, what, you know, what do you want to be known for? I mean, we, we've gone you know, around a lot of things here, but what do you want to be known for? And you're, you're, you know, you're, you got, you got great genes. You're, you're look like you're 50 years old and you're not, uh, you know, your mom's 93. You're, you're going to live to be a hundred, but, but you know, <laughs> when, when, on your 105th birthday, when you're, you know, you, you just, you just passed a year before, right? What is Dennis Barcini? What is Dennis Barcini? What, what should, should your name represent? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I don't I, I honestly don't think that I've done my best yet. Um, I, I keep I keep feeling that, that God's got something else out there for me, right? That that I that will be an even bigger impact than what I've been allowed to make so far in life. So I'm I'm looking forward to the future because mm -hmm. uh, I think the best is ahead of me. Um, but I I think at at the end of the day when you know when I'm laying down and uh and and they give my eulogy um you know i i just hope that my children respect me and and i hope that others say my life was better because he was in it hmm. and i and i think if if the world can say that 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 you know their life was better because i was in some small way in their life then then I will have done well. There's going to be a, about a thousand-page book of names in that. You know, they're, they're, they're going to be able to say that, you know, in well, my opinion. So yeah. that's awesome. Likewise, likewise. Well, well thanks, thanks for everything. I mean, anything you got, Q, that we we missed down there? Man, no, man, I got some amazing takeaways as it, always. Huh? Yeah, absolutely. We have a, something called Quentin True Takeaways. One of the first things he came out with, you know, you will never be the uh, you'll never be the smartest person in the room but you can always be the hardest working person mm -hmm. in the room. You know, uh, um, the one thing that you said, I was like, oh my gosh, that makes a lot of sense, which is um, never live your life to impress others. Live your life to impress yourself. Uh -huh. You know, uh, never comparing yourself to other people. Creating a roadmap, not just for business, but personal. I think mm -hmm. that's extremely huge. Um, you know, one thing that maybe everybody's always looking for a good idea. I need to have a good idea, right? But you was like, well, hold up. You know, uh, a great company isn't, great because of an idea a great company solves great problems mm -hmm. with a great idea yeah. and um it's huge you know uh don't let don't let your fear fuel uh, uh fuel your decision mm -hmm. i think that's huge um especially the 500 hundred dollar decision that you were talking about <laughs> earlier uh but more than more importantly i think the one thing that stuck out which i think a lot of people understand is the only thing that we can control um, is our reputation and, um, you have an amazing one, you know, from Barcima Hall to this, I mean, you know, you're talking about impacting people. I mean, whether rate your professor was there or not, I'm pretty sure everybody would, 
easily be in that book that you're looking <laughs> at too. So uh, I'm glad you're here, man. You know what's cool about the kids today is when you just mentioned Barcima Hall, right? So that's the College of Business building at mm-hmm. Northern Illinois University, and 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 I'll be in the building, and I love going in the building. It's it, even. 17 years later it's, it's still a beautiful structure and the, and and the students and the faculty and the staff take tremendous care of it but I'll, I'll i'll have students come up to me who may not have even been born when the building was opened or if they were they were just a couple of years old right and they will <laughs> come up to me and thank me and my wife because she, she was an equal part in it but but i'm there right but they'll thank me uh for the building they'll thank me for what we did for NIU. And, and it's like, you were two years old when <laughs> we did this, but they're so appreciative of, mm-hmm. of being able to learn in that facility. And it's a great, you know, it's a great mark on the youth of today, you know, that, um, that they do have appreciation. And I know the millennials and now the, the Gen Z's or whatever uh, we're calling them today, uh, you know, they've got their knocks on them in terms of, you know, how hard they work or anything else. But, I'll tell you what, at least the students we have at Northern Illinois University that I'm in contact with on a regular basis, they are terrific, terrific young men and women. And uh, our, our future's in very good hands. I agree. I, agree. I think, you know, hands. millennials and, and I think, the, you know, Zs are also going to be um, kids or an adults that, that have compassion, that, that grew up in an in a atmosphere where their parents, you know, were yeah. maybe sometimes overbearing, but they cared. Well, they're just doing it different than, yeah, than how exactly. we did it, right? Yeah. And, I mean, I, I know when I was, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, I, I'm, I'm <laughs> sure parents and, and their peers looked at us and going, you know, damn kids, <laughs> you know, damn rock and roll. Yeah, that's right, that's right. So embrace they're doing it. it different than we are. Embrace it. Embrace it. Embrace it, right? Because what, what we did turned out okay and and what they're going to do is going to turn out okay we we we, uh we have great millennials and and looking forward to the the generation z's uh in our organization and and i'll tell you what they've made us different and better and and created differentiation we've never had before in technology well you mentioned something at the beginning too is is you know the the strength of your family right Mm -hmm. and and um you know, ha- have your children and, and others that are in your family, have you allowed them to be successful? Is, you know, what you're doing complementing them and, and what they're doing? And, you know, I, you, you know, we talked about Jason, uh, you know, my youngest son who's, who's got a financial technology company here in Chicago. But, you know, my other two sons, you know, my, my, my oldest son, Matthew, is a teacher. Uh, my middle son, Eric, uh, works for a non-for-profit, works for a large non-for-profit uh, uh-huh. down in Tampa, uh, very successful. And so when you look at my life and all the things that I've done in my life, it's kind of cool because I've got all three sons mm-hmm. have kind of taken a part of my career. Jason's kind of the capitalist of uh-huh. the family, <laughs> you know, in, 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 in terms of being in, uh, uh, in business. Uh, my son Eric is in the non-for-profit sp- space and in the social space, and then my oldest son Matt's teaching, and and all three of those are areas so, that I've been a part so, of. So, and all, so, so all three cool. of them have what in common? They're all servants. I mean, I, I know Jason, and yeah. he's he's a leader that's going to serve his team and his customers better than anybody can. 
you know, your 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 son that's in in the uh, in the in social in the social space same right. way. Yeah. Your son that's a teacher the same way. Yeah. So they've gotten that servant mentality out of their fa- their father, and uh, that's awesome. We do a we do a father son trip every fall. So this year we're going to Miami uh, the first weekend in December. We always work around football and hockey or mm-hmm. foot football and baseball (laughs) games because we're all sports junkies and uh but but those are the 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 best times when the four of us are together because my two oldest boys live in tampa and jason's up here in chicago so you know we we aren't all four of us together at the same time more than a handful of times a year but when when we do get together it's a it's a really fun time i you know the relationship that you have with your family with your children is is just so precious and absolutely uh, absolutely you know what uh you're, you're just a few years older than me, but I want to continue you as one of my mentors in my life because you're, you know, oh, I can learn so much from you. Anytime we golf or do anything together, we learn from each I, other. I, I, I love being around you. So, awesome. uh, as you do this next big thing, the crazy thing that you're going to do in your life that's going to change the world even more than you yeah. have already, I'm going to be there, buddy. I want to be there, right? <laughs> thanks, brother. So, so, thanks for being. I really appreciate it. it. It's, uh, it's, it's been it's my been. honor. Great. And we'll see you all again at Ditch Digger CEO. See ya. If you enjoy this show, please share with anyone else you think will find value here. And please go to our website, ditchdiggerceo.com, for show notes, links, video clips, and more nuggets of entrepreneurial wisdom. Don't forget to follow me on social media at ditchdiggerceo and at Gary Rabine. If you listen to our show and want to become more successful, you will become more successful. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans. Then I became the CEO man. We're blessed to build a business in America where soldiers fight for our freedom every day. Dad's work ethic was taught from the seat of a gravel truck rolling down highways. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans, then I became the CEO man.